0: In 1697, a Dutch explorer named Willem de Vlaming arrived on the shores of a recently discovered continent, Australia. As he navigated this new land, Willem came face to face with a creature that, to Europeans, was as mythical as Bigfoot. That creature, a black swan. Willem's discovery proved that Europeans had been spectacularly wrong. It showed that a single event can shatter a belief held for centuries. Just as the saying goes, absence of evidence is not always evidence of absence. Nassim Taleb popularized the term black swan when he argued in 2007 that in a networked world, organizations and individuals must be prepared for and even expect the unexpected. He distinguished these unprecedented events from other extreme situations known as tail risk events. Black Swan events may be difficult to imagine, but they seem to be increasingly frequent. Recent catastrophic events are certainly proving this to be the case. With more unforeseen events shaping our world, Can we learn to expect the unexpected? To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to know how we got here. I'm Albert Chen, and this is The Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGM that untangles the past, the present day opportunities, and the future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. In this episode, We'll talk with three experts on black swan events and tail risk events. Kevin Coldiron is a lecturer in finance at the University of California at Berkeley and a co-author of the book, The Rise of Carry*. Laura Feldkamp is the Cooperman Professor of Finance and Economics at Columbia Business School. And Sushil Wadwani is Chief Investment Officer at PGM Wadwani, a boutique within PJM, and a former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. The unusual nature of black swan and tail risk events makes it difficult to not only plan for their potential, but also to think about how to respond to them. It's human nature to rely on precedent for decision-making, but that reliance can also lead to blind spots. Black swan events and tail risk events are sometimes used interchangeably to describe extreme and unpredictable events. There is an important distinction. Kevin
1: Coldiron explains. The difference really has to do with whether or not one's happened, whether or not one's been able to see it before. So I think of a tail event as something that's in the data. It's in the history, which means that conceptually we can model it, right? So the 2008 global financial crisis, the big drawdown in equity markets that happened there, that's a tail event. That's in the data. We can see it. A black swan is something that we haven't been able to see. So for instance, until a couple of weeks ago, the spike in the guilt yields that we saw in Britain and the crash in the pound wasn't in the data. That, that kind of like didn't seem like it was possible. Of course, once a black swan happens, then it, then it becomes a potential tail event.
0: Fortunately, the UK's guilt crisis was contained quickly and the fallout has not been severe. Will that be the case for similar crises in the future? How we respond to future events is a key point, especially given the level of uncertainty across the global economy. Pijim's Sushil Wadwani is laser focused on the landscape of potential risks.
2: In such a difficult environment where you have interest rates going up and growth slowing meaningfully, the risk of accidents in the financial sector go up a lot. And certainly, if you look at past Fed tightening cycles, we have seen, if you like, accidents or significant problems in the financial sector. So think back, for example, to the LDC crisis in the early 80s, savings and loans in the early 90s, Orange County, Mexico, 94.5, housing market difficulties and banking sector problems in 2008, eight nine in the GFC, and so on. And therefore, I would argue that with not only the Fed, but other central banks raising rates meaningfully this year, the risk of such accidents has gone up very significantly.
0: And it's not only the current economic environment that's likely to produce more frequent risk events. Here's Laura Feldkamp.
2: Part
3: of the reason that events that we would have considered rare are starting to seem more likely is that the world is changing rapidly. Technology is changing rapidly. Our climate is changing at a faster pace now than it was before. And so these create shifts in probabilities, things that would have really truly been unlikely in the 1980s are probably much more likely today. And that creates a lot of uncertainty.
0: Another key factor for black swan and tail risk events, liquidity. Kevin Coldiron's recent book focuses on carry trades as an important aspect of liquidity and liquidity related
1: tail events. What we've seen in the last 30 to 40 years is most of the time, The private provision of liquidity through carry trading makes markets seem very liquid, and that means it's easy to trade and credit is easily available. Carry trades are positions that
0: make money when volatility is low. One of the most common types of carry trade is where an investor borrows money in a low interest rate currency and invests that capital in a high interest rate currency. The spread they receive between the two rates is the carry, but to make a lot of money on this trade, You need leverage and that's where things get
1: unpredictable because those trades are short volatility when volatility emerges carry trades lose money very quickly and that liquidity provision is withdrawn and you have crash 1998 2008 2020 and in each of those cases um, the central bank has to kind of step in and become a public provider of liquidity so I think the specific lesson that we need to take away from that is that the apparent liquidity in the markets is very dependent on the growth of of carry trading and can evaporate quickly. And the lesson that I think a lot of people have drawn is that well, that's okay because central banks will step in and provide that liquidity. But the key difference between now and those three events that I laid out, those three events all occurred in a world where the main concern, the main pressures were deflationary. Deflationary certainly isn't a word you might use to describe the world today. Now the central bank is actively trying to counter inflation. So if it did need to step in and provide liquidity in a crash, it would be going against its you know, stated aim of of basically tightening monetary policy. So that sort of intervention would then risk the credibility of the central bank. and it could be, you know, I, I typically tend to think of the Fed because that's the most important one out there, but it would really be global central banks in that case. and then you then you have a risk of them not being able to suppress volatility, volatility continuing to rise. So I think the the lesson, the main lesson is that uh, liquidity in our world is, is fragile. You shouldn't really rely on it. It's easy to get complacent
0: about liquidity risk. Liquidity risk has been mostly low over the past couple of decades, which seems to have reinforced all kinds of carry trading. Should we worry that institutional investors now see liquidity as table stakes? Not necessarily, according to PJM's recent research.
2: So certainly, if, for example, one looked at the survey that PGIM carried out of 400 senior investment decision makers at institutional investors globally, PGIM found that the three global tail risks, top uh, global tail risks were an unexpected liquidity crunch in key capital markets, which does indeed overlap with the sorts of financial market accidents I've been talking about. And I guess if you think of this tail risk as being a kind of earthquake, then an early tremor was seen in the UK uh, with the problems that we saw uh, with the LDI strategies run by many, but not all UK pension funds. That certainly to me was to some extent the canary in the coal mine in terms of the liquidity issues that we might see recur as the global tightening cycle continues.
0: The second highest risk that investors identified was a military conflict in the South China Sea or Taiwan Strait. That could seriously impact global asset prices.
2: The third one, uh, which to some extent has some relationship also to liquidity issues, but one which investors were pretty worried about, was the possibility of a cyber attack which disabled a major financial platform or a government agency for a significant period of time. Now, the overlap between this and the liquidity crunch is that, of course, if it did disable a major financial platform, it would mean that many investors around the world would not be able to liquidate some of their holdings. And it would Therefore, lightly raise liquidity issues for them.
0: Markets generally don't like uncertainty, but they've been stable for the most part, even as risk factors have increased. Could the frequency of tail risks be
3: changing the way we think about risk? There are two competing forces. One is, if I see an event that I've seen before, I say, oh, I know what this is. I know how to respond to this. So I remember at the start of the financial crisis, the guy in the office next door to me was from Argentina. And one night the president comes on TV and prime time and says, don't worry, the banks will be fine. And as soon as he heard that, he said, I just bought gold, big physical blocks of gold, because I've heard that statement before. And I know that when the politician comes along and says, don't worry, the banks are fine. They're not fine. And so he reacted very promptly and in a very strong way to a threat that was similar to something he'd seen before. I hadn't seen a statement like that before. And my response was, oh, great. They're on top of it. They'll make sure the banks are fine. And I left my money in the bank. So having seen an event, having lived through an event can create an increased sensitivity to stimuli, to circumstances that look similar to that event. But if we see this event over and over and over again, it starts to become a little less frightening.
0: Market participants are humans. We each have our own subjective views. So even if we're running quantitative models, we inject our own interpretations. For Sushil, the key is having a risk-oriented framework in place that anticipates black swan and tail events.
2: I've always believed that it's very important to prepare portfolios for the possibility that such unexpected risks might materialize. Now, clearly, you know, diversification goes some of the way, but I think when you do diversify, it's very important to make sure that one includes strategies that have this kind of asymmetric payoff, i.e. strategies that will particularly make money when equity markets do poorly. Now, if you look around what at least some of our investors do routinely, is they hold options-based strategies within their portfolio. So it might be something as simple as a put option. It might be something just slightly more sophisticated, like an equity collar, or it may be a much more sophisticated options-based strategy.
0: While operationally complicated, these strategies generally involved holding options. Usually, put options that give the investor the right to sell certain securities at a certain price level. That effectively protects the portfolio when there's a large drop in price of these securities. Of course, the catch is that they can be expensive and complicated to manage.
2: Others include trend following strategies because trend following strategies have the well known property that if equity markets fall gradually over a sustained period, then they do tend to make money as well. And in my experience, those are the two main things I see our investor base do.
0: Markets are by nature dynamic and constantly moving. So where should investors look for the biggest potential tail risk
1: events? There's two things that I would... Point to one is in the money market and the corporate bond market. So you know, in two thousand eight, money market funds got into trouble. They typically now mainly just invest in government bonds. They really don't hold any corporate bonds. But replacing that has grown up this this kind of quite interesting and diverse ecosystem of corporate bond ETFs, and they now hold double the amount of corporate bonds that money market funds did at their peak. So. I think of those as kind of a, an ecosystem of cash substitutes, right? And the more stable the market is, the lower volatility, the more people kind of crawl out on the risk spectrum and hold corporate bonds ETFs that have longer durations, more credit risk, et cetera. And then when volatility emerges, people quickly rush back down um, out of those you know, kind of riskier ETFs, and eventually into cash. And that's exactly what we saw in the spring of 2020, is that liquidity in these corporate bond ETFs totally evaporated. Um, a lot of them traded briefly at very high discounts. And that's why I think that the Fed had to intervene and say that it was prepared to purchase corporate bond ETFs and corporate bonds themselves, because otherwise there would have been you know, a, a huge spike in credit spreads. So that's now a known risk or a tail risk. When I look at what happened in the gilt market, right, you think about that. That's a government bond market where yields were spiking, you know, in an unprecedented way in in a matter of days. And now that's in the data. That's gone from being a black swan to being a tail event. And because it's now in the data, that means that there's knock on effects, for instance, When you pledge UK government bonds gilt as collateral for loans, now they don't look so low risk. In the past, you, you, you know, the haircuts on those would have been very low. Now models are going to say, well, the haircuts have to be quite high or higher, which means they're less useful as a tool for getting leverage. So that reduces the kind of liquidity in the system.
0: Could a situation like that arise in the US treasury market? And how would that impact how treasuries are used in collateral securities?
1: Longer term, you know, the risk weighting in, say, bank portfolios of treasuries would have to be reevaluated. So a delevering in the treasury market that led to a big unexpected spike in yields systematically would have systematic, I think, and long-term effects on liquidity because it would move from being a black swan to a tail event, and then models would have to be adjusted and the long-term allocations would have to change and then you know the fed would likely have to intervene and stabilize the market which of course it doesn't want to do because it's trying to do the opposite um, and so that you'd have inflation uncertainty increase as well so that's the real risk that i worry about right now is something breaking in the in the treasury market Laura Feldkamp echoes that
0: concern along with a couple of other risks on the horizon
3: I think the risk of conflict between the United States and China is a real risk with unknown consequences that could be enormous, could be catastrophic. Maybe we resolve it you know, with, uh, with some negotiations and it just becomes some tension. But there are a lot of unknown unknowns. Human beings are enormously unpredictable. Another source of large risk is, is the climate even the small changes in climate we've seen already are having unpredictable consequences. The Mississippi is drying up right now, leaving ships stranded that should be transporting agricultural products from the Midwest down, down to the Gulf, and those aren't able to, to get through. I'd say the last category of of big risks is the the fiscal risks, partly in response to this global pandemic and the Uncertainty and, and economic dislocation it's caused, governments have spent a lot of money. And so there's a, a lot of government debt out there. And especially as interest rates start to rise, it becomes harder and harder for governments to service this debt. And so that risk to the stability of the financial sector that comes from government debt, you know, we we think of government debt often as like money. It's it's safe, it's reliable. But if it seems like it becomes risky, that could be a serious threat to the financial sector.
0: Those are big potential risks. Options can provide good protection under these scenarios. But options are an expensive insurance policy, and that can really test an investor's stamina in good times when they expire before they're needed. Trend strategies typically do well when markets are strong, but they're less reliable in down markets.
2: This is what motivated us to create a modified, if you like, macro tail risk strategy, where what we did is we attempted to improve upon these two alternatives. So, for example, we improved upon just using trend-following strategies by adding in a variety of non-trend-following strategies that provide diversification and that have the property that when equities go down hard and trend following makes you money, the non-trend strategies then help you buy equities as they begin to recover. And in that way, you end up locking in, on average, the profit that was associated with uh, you know, your trend following strategies kicking in when equities went down. So that's one advantage of adding in additional strategies. The other thing that we've done is we've attempted to improve upon the reliability of using trend-following strategies on their own because some of these non-trend-following strategies, when combined with trend-following, give you the considerable advantage of improved reliability when equities go down, especially if you do what we did, which is we looked for non-trend-following strategies That have an asymmetric return profile, i.e. those that make money when equities go down and don't lose very much or lose nothing when equities go up. And we've succeeded in finding some of these other additional strategies and combine them with trend following to, I would argue, get a more diversified set of tail risk protection strategies.
0: Many institutional investors have added this type of strategy to their portfolio. Others are relying on their long-term horizon, preferring to leave their allocation alone and ride out tail events.
3: The liquidity premium will compensate the marginal or the average investor for their cost of bearing that li- illiquidity. So family offices, uh, you know, pension funds, they have a long horizon. they can They can ride through a lot of liquidity events. They're being appropriately compensated. But for somebody who thinks of this as a shorter term investment or might have to sell for some reason along the way, they're probably not getting enough compensation for for holding that kind of asset and they should make a different selection.
0: And even for firms that may not be directly impacted by a liquidity event, their asset prices could be indirectly impacted over the long term by scarring effects. But there's also upside risk for liquidity.
3: So upside risks are really exciting. They arise a lot in settings like uh, venture capital, where you bet on some firms, many of which may, may fail. But once in a while, you might hit on a unicorn. And, um, you know, those are tough to predict. Uh, just like downside risks, they're they're extreme. They're unusual. They don't usually look just like any other rare event that's that's happened. But you want to think of this as kind of like buying a lottery ticket. But this is a lottery ticket where they're good odds, right? Uh, uh, when the state runs a lottery, usually the state earns money on average, and so your odds are are bad. This is this is you know playing with with good odds, but still very unlikely. And so if one thinks about trying to invest in a portfolio of lottery tickets, you just want to take a lot, a lot of gambles and then hope that one of them pays off.
1: Kevin Coldiron agrees. For long-term investors, I think there's a potentially a a good side to this or or an opportunity. And we talk about this in the book. We we identify the S&P 500 as kind of the center of what we call the global carry trade. And the reason it's the center is because the ecosystem surrounding it so the ecosystem of products around the s p 500 are ultra liquid and that has created this function of kind of the insurance market for for risk assets around the world so the downside to that is when risk increases when volatility increases there are very steep drawdowns but the flip side of that is that there's a liquidity premium embedded in the s p 500 that we don't think is embedded in other markets and therefore it ought to be the best paying risk asset in the world and certainly has been over say the last 15 years or so for long-term investors if you can tolerate those big drawdowns then you should be rewarded for that there is a liquidity premium in the s p 500 that will make it in our view as long as this carry regime continues will make it the best paying risk asset in the world
0: maybe the current environment calls for more of a multifaceted approach to managing extreme downside risk while leaving room for upside risk.
2: We have a variety of different strategies that we use within our macro tail risk portfolio. And some have a highly asymmetric return profile in the sense they make lots of money in bad times and zero in good times. And there are others which make You know, a decent amount of money in bad times and make a small amount of money in good times. Now, when you get to an environment of rising risks, quantitative portfolio allocation mechanism works towards rewarding those strategies which have greater asymmetry in their return profile
0: quantitative portfolio allocation mechanism is a name we give to strategies that pivot between different tactics, depending on the market
2: environment. What that does is it makes the overall portfolio more defensive in periods when equities go down. And we've certainly benefited from this shift in the capital allocation in 2022
0: there are always opportunities to deploy dry powder, even in light of black swan events with lots of potential fallout.
1: In a world where, say, we have a, just a resetting of valuations because of a dislocation in the treasury markets, if that pulled down energy stocks, which I think it would, that could be a really attractive entry point for something that I think offers pretty good protection against a higher inflation environment, which we would then see longer term.
0: There's a bright side to any market, at least for those with capital available. That's a valuable lesson on the upside of risk, to take advantage of opportunities when extreme events make them available. On the downside of risk, while we can't directly manage all forms of risk, we can take a more risk-oriented approach to investing. We know it's not possible to perfectly manage all risks, but perhaps we can be on greater alert. Thanks to our experts, Kevin Coldiron, Laura Feldkamp, and Sushil Wadwani for their insights on Black Swan and tail risk events in this last episode of season two of The Outthinking Investor. Remember to join us for season three, beginning in early 2023. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGM. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, go ahead and give us a review.
4: This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of m PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2022. The PGM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGM's parent and its related entities registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.